I wonder, please, would you turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 35, the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis 35. I'm very conscious that throughout the nation and indeed further afield, there will be many people today standing at cenotaphs or monuments that are of special significance uh, to this nation. And just for a few moments in the ministry of God's Word today, I want to bring your attention to a special monument in the life of Jacob uh, and see what lessons we can learn in this generation uh, concerning the uh, challenge that this monument uh, brings before us. Now we read of this monument or this altar in Genesis 35, we're just reading from verse 1 through to verse 8 of the chapter. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise, and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me, in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because their God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alon Bachoth. We'll end a reading just there at the verse 8 of this chapter, knowing that God will add to the public reading of his word his own divine seal of approval and blessing. The divinely inspired instruction that Isaac gave to his son Jacob to go to his mother's father was in many ways a precursor to a variety of experiences that was used of God not only to mould the life of an individual but to mould the life of an entire nation. For us in this 21st century, it is sometimes difficult to accept that Israel has only been recognized 
as a nation for a mere 70 years. While I passionately believe that Israel is the visible fulfillment of biblical prophecy, I cannot and I must not ignore the spiritual lessons that emanate from a history that covers a period of time as somewhere between 5,000 and 6,000 years. In any careful study of the Old Testament scriptures, the reader will quickly discover a timeless relevancy in the details given concerning any number of the providentially placed men and women. And yet it is reasonable to state uh, that Isaac's son Jacob uh, figures with such a degree of prominence that demands the attention of Bible believers of every generation. Put simply, the geographical journeys of Jacob correspond with the spiritual travels of those of us who profess faith in the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. His experiences at such locations as Bethel and Peniel have formed the basis for a multitude of spiritual lessons that have not been devalued with the passage of time. In fact, their importance, and hence their value, has risen considerably as we witness the spiritual downgrade of this particular generation. For while we can easily comment upon all that is wrong in our nation, and there is much that could be said on this front, the issues surrounding our own heart cannot be dismissed. For I fear, dear men and women, we are living at a time when spiritual backsliding is at its most intense, a fact that is central to our scripture reading. In verse 1 of Genesis 35, God said unto Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. It was now thirty years since the Lord's servant had been at Bethel. He had just left his father's house when God introduced himself as the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. However, it was what he said to him that was pivotal to his entire experience. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it unto thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. From this moment of intervention in Jacob's life, we find that three decades have now swiftly passed into eternity. But in those 30 years, dramatic changes took place in the life of this dear favoured servant of God. 
His 20 years in the house of Laban were consistently charged uh, with high emotion and with bitter disappointment. Being initially exposed to the devious scheming of his uncle in relation to his intended marriage with Rachel, he found himself a father to a family that had Leah, that had Silpah, that had Bilhad, and Rachel as mothers uh, to his children. In Rachel's situation, it is worth referring to the pressure she put upon her husband when in her desperation she cried out, Give me a child or I die. To suggest that the situation at home was complicated would be an understatement. And outside the home, Jacob struggled in his attempts to please a father-in-law who was guile personified. We are told that on ten occasions, the wily Laban sought to devalue his, neighbor's, his nephew's wages only to discover that Jacob was enabled to outcrafty the crafty. All the ingredients were in place for this 20-year relationship to be severed, and when the time would come, it would not be executed seamlessly. And so we discovered there was a division between Jacob and Laban. And Jacob went on his journey, a journey that was distinguished by two very important meetings. The one was to transform his life, and that was the one with the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he met at the place called Peniel. The other was his meeting with his estranged brother Esau. The detailed recording of both encounters provide a timeless source of encouragement for all of us in this service. And thankfully, God can break down the barriers that often exist between himself and we, his people, as well as dealing with issues that have divided his children. The sense of relief that prevailed upon Jacob, particularly in the aftermath of his meeting with Esau, it must have been palpable as a major burden in his life had been unexpectedly lifted. But as so often is the case in the life of every Bible believer, Jacob soon lost sense of his direction. On leaving his brother Esau, he erected his tent close to the city of Shechem where his spiritual heart was exposed as being in a backslidden state. Which brings us to an examination of four very simple but relevant points, each of which confirm the undoubted need for Jacob to arise and go to Bethel, go back to where it started. There is, first of all, 
perversity before power. We are instantly reminded of one of the several outcomes in his life when God the Son met with him at Peniel. We are told this, For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men. In many ways, this is the indisputable evidence of a man or of a woman who is in communion with God, as demonstrated in Jacob's meeting with Esau. All his imaginary thoughts of a physical confrontation were immediately dissipated when his brother Esau ran to meet him, falling on his neck, kissing him, causing them both to weep. With humble acknowledgement, the youngest son of Isaac openly declared, God hath graciously dealt with me. This was the high moment in his turbulent life. But when we constructively analyze the next stage in his life, we reluctantly are brought to an understanding of a man who forfeited that power. And that power is replaced with an accepting perversity. His time as a guest of Harmar and his family was a non-mitigated spiritual disaster. His daughter Dinah was molested by Hammer's son Shechem and in an effort to recover the situation, Simeon and Levi had to plan that had perverseness written all over it. They directed this Gentile family to be circumcised as the price required for their sister to be married to the said Shechem. And when they agreed, the two sons of Jacob used the window of opportunity to slay all the males when they were coping with the extreme pain resulting from the act of circumcision. The whole thing was utterly perverse. But Jacob appears absolutely powerless to deal with the matter. In fact, his only cause for concern was how his own reputation may be affected. Ye have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land. They will gather themselves together against me and slay me. No reference to how the actions of Simeon and Levi had caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. But what are the signs or the indicators that accompany a diminishing of spiritual power and consequently an invasion of a moral and spiritual perversity? Let me just mention them to you. There is the removal of God's presence. The Word of God makes it clear that God has and God does remove his presence from his people. The word Ichabod hangs over the nation of Israel 
as a solemn reminder to every Bible believer that the glory of God departed uh, from Israel. And in Jacob's case, we are brought face to face with a major and devastating consequence of what it means when God sovereignly steps aside from his people. That consequence being the removal of God's restraint. This is demonstrated in the way in which Shechem took Dinah and lay with her and defiled her. Now the careful reader of the scriptures will recall that Dinah's grandfather Isaac and her great-grandfather Abraham were in similar situations to herself with their respective wives. Both Sarah and Rebekah could have been defiled. Sarah by the king of Gerah and Rebekah by the king of the Philistines. I say could have been defiled. I might well have said would have been defiled if God had not to have intervened. To Amalek, incidentally, the two kings had the same name. The Lord said in reference to his serum, For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. And in the case of Rebekah, it was revealed to the Philistine king that she was indeed Isaac's wife before he and his people had crossed the line of immorality. In other words, God's presence will be a restraint against sin. But when he removes his presence, then all that is corrupt, all that is lustful, all that is the characterization of evil will express itself in a way that is destructive, damaging, and devastating to a nation and to its people. I'm somewhat reluctant to say this. But in light of what we have been listening to in terms of the situation in Westminster and the immorality and the perversity that is so evidently manifesting itself not only in Westminster undoubtedly throughout other parts of the nation but thinking of Westminster the thought challenged me with a sense of broken heartedness has God's presence left this nation? Are we seeing the aftermath of God removing his presence from the nation? When God removed his presence temporarily from Jacob, perversity took over from power. But there's not only the removal of God's presence. There is the relaxation of God's purity. 
while there is the absence of God's favoured presence, there will be a notable change in a person's attitude to sin. When Jacob heard about how his daughter had been treated, he should have lifted up his voice to protest against such iniquity. But there is no suggestion that he condemned the action or challenged the perpetrator. This was a tragic reflection of his spiritual condition. And it is something that we as individuals and as a church and as a denomination, I believe, should take cognitions of with considerable ease. We can recall a time when the peoples of this land knew that a theatrical performance that was contrived in immodesty and composed in sensuality would be confronted with a spirit of righteous indignation. The same was true of the peddlers of apostasy whose compromise with and capitulation to error was publicly faced with a steadfastness that was enforced with an overwhelming desire to earnestly contend for the faith. And when there was an attempt to legitimize and to glamorize the baser instincts of the human heart, a stand was taken against it. And while the criticism was intense, and the voices of condemnation strong in their denunciation of us, no one could question the reality of God's presence amongst us. For God had given his people a power, both within and without the pulpit, that lifted us far beyond our numerical strength. The advertisers of iniquity expected a reaction to their iniquitous business, and they got it. But like Jacob, we can so easily become relaxed, indifferent, and ambivalent to impurity. As we find ourselves described in the words of Matthew 24, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Oftentimes I have dismissed this text as a message for someone else. But before God, this Sabbath day, I cannot ignore the fact that that text is for me. I wonder, is it for you? May we genuinely fear the possibility of having a relaxed attitude to our responsibility of separating the precious from the vile 
For in the absence of such a fear, we will have put perversity before power. Another contributing factor to the evident powerlessness of Jacob is seen in the relegation of God's priorities. God had instituted the ceremony of circumcision not only for its physical and medical advantages, but as an outward sign that Israel was distinguished with certain priorities. No other people had been entrusted with the type of spiritual and material provisions that was given to the sons of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And yet here we see it. How Simeon and Levi deliberately abused this sacred directive of circumcision to achieve their own murderous ends. Much of which has been gifted to us for the overall benefits of our nation has been politicized, trivialized, and compromised. Is not that most blessed gift of marriage abused in such a way? And are we not concerned about the prospect of the ministry being used for a career in the absence of a call from God? Schism. I fear these matters become more and more prevalent when there is the removal of God's presence, the relaxation of God's purity, and the relegation of God's priorities. But I can add one more, and that is the resistance of God's purpose. This is observed during a conversation between the elder statesmen of the two families here, the family of Hamar and the family of Jacob. Hamar proposed that Jacob should dwell with him and his family, and he established the terms of a trade agreement that would have a binding impact upon all concerned. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In this age of Brexit, trade agreements, well, we have it here in the Bible. Hammer wanted a trade agreement with, with Jacob. But immediately, it should have been resisted, as I believe it should have been resisted over 40 years ago in our nation. Insomuch as God had already mapped out Israel's territory, and had covenanted that Jacob's seed was absolutely pivotal to the families of the earth being blessed. But when we attempt to materialize matters that are exclusively spiritual, we are exposed as leaning upon our own understanding. Sadly for Jacob, the change was par to perversity. But let me just briefly mention place before person. Please notice in verse 7 
of Genesis 35 that he called the place El Bethel not just simply Bethel but now he puts the emphasis upon the person of God rather than the place of God. When he previously referred to Bethel he concentrated upon the place. Surely the Lord is in this place. How dreadful is this place. But as he emerges from his backslidden condition, the house of God becomes secondary to the God of the house. For the place in and of itself was meaningless without the benediction and blessing of God. Remember how one of our Lord's disciples was eager to show the Lord Jesus Christ around the temple, drawing his attention to the type of stones that were used in its construction. The response of the Lord Jesus Christ remains a master class of instruction. Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, there is something more important than the ascetic magnificence of a building. And that is the felt presence of the Lord Jehovah. In many ways, this is a test as to where our priorities lie. Do we eat, drink, and sleep thinking about the things we see. If we do, it is important to remind ourselves that such matters are divinely classified as temporal. For the things which we see are temporal, but the things which we do not see, they are eternal. Jacob was brought to appreciate the fact that his relationship with God was much more important than the historical setting of the place. Thus he called it El Bethel, place before person. Now it is person before place. Then we find Jacob with principle before popularity. We've already been given a glimpse into the self-assessment of this patriarch in that he was concerned about his own popularity before the nations round about. And even within his own family, he sought to retain his reputation among those that he particularly loved. You will recall that he placed Rachel and Joseph behind his handmaids, Leah and the others, in the event that a battle would break out between himself and his brother Esau. But now as he is directed to go back to Bethel, he is constrained to speak to his household. Verse 2, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. This command would have impacted upon all of the family. 
but especially upon Rachel. You recall how Rachel had taken her father's images and hid them among the camel's furniture. But now Jacob, emerging from backsliding, as I believe he is, is quite prepared to endure the wrath of his beloved wife in order that he might anticipate the Lord's blessing at El Bethel. There is no suggestion now that there was any resistance to this because we learn that they gave unto him all the strange gods which were in their hands and all the earrings which were in their ears and he buried them under an oak which was by Shechem. Let me ask you this. I'm asking myself the same question. Is there anything in my life I'm going to say yes, even now. Is anything in your life that needs to be buried? Is there a grudge? Bitterness, envy, jealousy, an unforgiving spirit, hatred even. But then the danger is we'll lose our popularity if we acknowledge that one or more of these matters have taken up residence within our hearts. But what's more important? The popularity of man or the blessing of God? Our eyes go back to Bethel. Final point promise before problems. Jacob's life was the personification of problems, some of which we have, of course, alluded to. But in spite of all that he encountered, God promised to him when he first came to Bethel <coughs> that he would give him this land, and that promise could not and would not be broken. And I confess I really do appreciate those wonderful words that if we believe not, he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's the burden of my heart and other people that we should get God's word to the sons and daughters of Jacob. And God willing over this incoming year as we celebrate the Reformation and the restoration of Jerusalem to the Jewish people, we will be going back and forward distributing God's word to different people throughout the land of Israel. Indeed we have, and I say this with humble gratitude, we have opportunity to present a copy of the Old and New Testament scriptures to the Prime Minister of Israel either at the end of this year or at the beginning of next year. There's a wonderful reason for that. Because there is a link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The very first verse in Matthew's Gospel reads, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. The very first verse 
and the Old and the New Testament. And that brings us to the cross, to the transforming power of the Saviour's precious blood. Now some of you may have gathered this morning and you do have problems. Maybe not to the same extent as Jacob had problems. But can I say very lovingly to you, as God promised to keep Jacob, he has promised to keep you. And all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yea and amen. In a little wrath, he said, to, through the prophet Isaiah, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy upon thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. Could I be bold to even suggest in closing that some dear heart present with us today has got where Jacob got to backslidden you try your best to cover it and so do I we do all that we can to gloss over it but we know there's something missing that really should be there God is saying to you saying to me this morning go back to Bethel Go back to where it started. Go back to your first love. And if it be you call the place El Bethel, you'd be following the line of the great patriarch, where God becomes more important in the place. And I say this with the utmost affection. God must be more important to me than my ministry. More important to me than the church that I'm privileged to attend. More important to me than the denomination. We thank God for those avenues. But we must come to the God of the place rather than to the place of God. Will you arise this morning and in spirit go back to your beginning? Thank you for listening. I trust that God will very graciously take the human limitations of this preacher and apply his word to your heart.